What's going on, guys? We're going to do a quick Q&A with just Michael and I because Theo is putting baby Olivia to bed. So we're going to let him do his thing. Unfortunately, she uh, – actually, I think – sorry, the opposite. I think she just woke up, so he couldn't get on the thing. I was telling him, jump on, and if she starts crying in the background, he can just run off, and it would be kind of funny, but <laughs> it is what it is. So, if she so we're going to do a – He'll have to run off and get her. That's man. So I'm actually gonna go hang out with them on uh, Saturday. It's funny when like because our girlfriends talk so much now. Yeah. That like Shannon's just like, hey, we're going over for dinner to hang out with Steph and Olivia on Saturday, and I'm like, oh, we are. What the fuck? <laughs> and, th- and then I get to the gym, and then Theo's like, hey, apparently you guys are coming over, so uh, you want to go golf while they hang out with the baby? And I was like, yep. So we're gonna go <laughs> golf. So that'll be good, but. So but yeah, so we're going to do – go ahead. I was going to say, so it turns out that they made plans. It just so happens that then you and Theo can figure out the rest. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's been like that every time. So we'll we'll go do dinner and stuff, but it's always them two setting up things. Me and Theo never do, so which is cool. <laughs> but uh, we're going to do pretty much mainly nutrition. We're, I mean, we're getting to the topics that – a lot of people asked us on our group page. So again, I'm going to throw a reminder out because I think we're going to leave this open for one more week, but it is still open if you want to jump into the Mind vs. Muscle team page, which is a free uh, Facebook group. Right now it's free. Soon it will be a charged thing, but essentially people are posting their exercises of videos of them doing it. We're critiquing their squats and deadlifts and things like that. We're answering their nutrition questions. We're helping them troubleshoot. We're giving them free extra content. And it's just a great place for everybody to have a good accountability system and a community of like-minded individuals. So we posted, hey, we're doing a Q&A, throw us your questions, and a bunch of people jumped on it. Um, so we got a ton of questions, and we didn't have a chance to get through all of them on the previous Q&A. So this is what we're going to finish today, and we're going to knock out some more questions. So if you want to start with the first one, we'll get right to it. Yeah, so Carlos asks, he says, he's just curious. I've noticed a lot of formulas when it comes to tracking calories for weight loss, recommended body weight times 10 for total calories. Uh, just curious as to why this is a good place to start. I know it works. I've seen it done before. And I just want to know really if there's a particular study or research that dives deeper into this. Yeah, so I think like this one's tough too because there's a lot of generic templates and calculators and all these things out there. And I don't know if Precision Nutrition was the first one to lay this 10 times body weight out there. But that was the first person uh, or company I heard recommend 10 times your body weight in calories for um, a weight loss strategy, right? So I believe it goes 10 to 12 times your body weight is supposed to be weight loss. About 13 to 14 times your body weight is supposed to be maintenance. And then above that is going to be weight gaining. Unfortunately, because of the lifestyle factors that just majority of people live right now, that's not the case because – so if I did 14 times my body weight, I don't know what that would be off the top of my head, but it would be more calories than I'm consuming right now, right? So we got to look at and, – and I'm maintaining weight right now. So we got to think about like our lifestyle factors and if we're ready for that because a lot of people will 10 times their body weight and they want to lose weight and that will be a calorie bump from where they're at right now and that will actually cause them to gain weight. So what I – said to him is like, I don't usually use this with clients. What I recommend is actually tracking your diet 
where you're at now and then adjusting from there because then we can actually decide where you're at, where you need to be and how we can bridge that gap. Because if you are too low of calories and that's why you're not losing weight, it's a completely different path than it would be if we are going to um, drop calories and try to lose weight. So um, I, I let them know that the best thing to do is either get a coach or get somebody who can uh, look at where you're at now and then adjust from there. But where it came from and where I think the science backs this up is once we get below about 10 times your body weight in calories is where we start to see hormonal impacts or hormonal effects. So essentially that's when we start to downregulate uh, thyroid, uh, cortisol levels start to go up, um, testosterone possibly can lower, um, we are going to drop performance, our metabolism can possibly slow. So once we dip below that 10 times your body weight, that's when we can kind of start having negative impact. So with that being said, it, there's a couple caveats here. Some people will need to even go to like eight times their body weight just to see weight loss and that's okay. But the key here is, is do that for one, two, three months tops, but after about that three month period, you need to bump it back up to about 10 to 14 times your body weight so you can hit a maintenance calorie and let your body adjust, resensitize to their hormones and get healthy. Then you can go back to that weight loss because I know like if you just stay in a deficit for too long, you're just going to be hurting yourself um, in the long run. You're not going to progress the way you want to. So that's kind of where I think it came from um, and what you should probably do to make sure that you can mitigate the effects. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think I remember when I first started with you, you had me track my calories as a good starting point to find out if it was that times eight times 10, what would be where would you need to be at? So, right. And then the easiest thing to do is like, okay, we're right here. We need to be right here. Let's bridge that gap by doing X, Y, Z. Let's do this. And then you can adjust training volume, all these different things. But um, actually, you know what? Another thing I should point out too is is if somebody is obese, this kind of completely goes out the window because if somebody is, let's say they're five five and they're two hundred pounds and or two hundred twenty pounds and they should probably lose about a hundred pounds to get to their normal body weight or even more than fifty pounds, right? So a lot of weight to lose. If you go ten times your body weight, that's going to be a lot more than necessary. So you can actually drop that number down quite a bit and still be totally safe hormonally. So we got to think about that. So if you have 50 plus pounds to lose, maybe you go with six, seven, eight times your body weight, let yourself lose a bunch of weight. And by the time you get to that goal, you're probably going to be above 10 times your body weight now and still be at a healthy place. So again, all these calculators and different ways to set up your calories or macros are really generic. So it's really about individualism. And I mean, we preach that quite a bit. So trying to find a way to get a system and a customized diet that actually works for you and makes you feel good. Awesome. So the next one is from Susan and she asks, what are your favorite mobility exercises for people with lower back pain and improving hip mobility? So, um, I'm actually going to toss this one to you first, bro. Like let's, uh, cause you not too long ago, were just going through a back injury. So we've been doing a bunch of different things. You've been seeing our guy, Dan Swinsko, who's a, um, a PT in our area and soon to be at our gym. So why don't you kind of give us your feedback of like what's been helping you the most lately. And then I'll dive in and tell you what helped me the most when I had my back injury. Well, for me, we took it back to basics. So literally he had me think of when you were an infant, when you were a baby, what did you first learn how to do? So, I mean, I was literally just laying on the floor having to learn how to roll over, but not use any of my core strength, any of my other muscles, just using my arm 
to basically push myself over and sort of think like a baby would. And then we, once we could get that, then we moved on to rolling over from our stomach and vice versa. Um, so really we just started with basics and we're still working on that too. And it has helped immensely. Um, obviously we, we kind of took down some of the, the heavier training that would affect, uh, some of my lack of form with low back that would maybe cause some pain, but, um, right. That's where. Really so what did, did he break down like the purpose and, and why behind uh, the crawling or not necessarily the crawling, but I'm sure you have been doing crawling too, the rolling and things like that. Because I know for me, when I uh, actually went to college studying this stuff, our teacher worked, he had a, a gym in the hospital and he used to work with really high level athletes. But then after he, I should say, aged into his career, he actually started moving into the rehabilitation. And that's exactly, I, I actually watched when I was mentoring under him, I watched him get a guy who was a um, pretty much paraplegic. He was in a wheelchair. His, his wife had to push him around stuff because he uh, was a race car driver and got in an accident, couldn't move, and now he walks. So he started with the, taking this guy out of his wheelchair and just teaching him how to like slowly move and roll and all this stuff. So did he break down any of the science behind it or why he's doing that to you? He didn't get too scientific on me, uh, just kept it kind of base. But one thing we did focus on, which I didn't – really no one had ever mentioned it to me before is that um due to my Crohn's and autoimmune issues that is going to naturally weaken my core because my body's either going to think do we want to keep the muscles happy or do we want to keep the insides happy and so that's why I've had core issues which kind of leads into why I've had some lower back issues because I can't keep that core tight when I should be doing some of the the movements properly Okay. Okay. I think, uh, obviously that's huge and that's important. I think a big thing too is neurologically, right? Like getting our body to move, right? Cause I know when we started implementing crawling and, and if you have low back issues, crawling is another really great way. Um, because a lot of people just don't know how to move properly from a neural standpoint. And I, and, and I say that because if, and you've probably seen this, like when we do crawl movements at the gym, we'll go, okay. So even if you're on all fours and you're not even lifting your knees up, so it's not a super demanding core exercise. And we go, I just want you to move small baby steps, your left hand with your right foot at the exact same time. Yeah. People cannot get that movement pattern. <laughs> and and that's a, learned, uh, a neurological thing that we've lost over time. It's just like what I talk about with, and this is good for people with low back issues as well, train with your shoes off. Do mobility, do some movement stuff, take your shoes off because we essentially lose all that nerves in the bottom of our feet and we're supposed to have just as much feeling and nerve and sensitivity in our feet as we are our hands. It's crazy. But we've been wearing socks and shoes. It's so crazy. Yeah. Like we've been wearing socks and shoes for so long. It's like imagine wearing two p uh, pairs of gloves on your hands for the rest of your life. Right. You wouldn't be able to feel anything. So that can help a lot too. So doing the crawling stuff is just going to get you that neurological thing, taking the shoes off. Um and what I told her in the group, because I did try to answer her directly in the group, is my – like if I had to pick one mobility exercise, I picked the shim box because I think it's just a, such a great way that you can regress anybody into doing just to open up the hips in, in a, a more than one dimension. So – and there's so many variations of it. I mean, you know how Theo is with the flow. He'll be like oh, yeah. shim boxing around the whole fucking gym <laughs> just doing all this crazy shit. So – for me, uh, when I hurt my back and I was really trying to get over it, I, I literally just – and I hate mobility. So it was good for me to pick one thing and just do a lot of it. So I literally just did shin boxes and I just stretched my hip flexors a lot. And that 
essentially cured me. Now there's a couple variations of shin boxes I did, but I just repeatedly was doing those every day. Um, I also would recommend a lot of breathing stuff. So breathing is huge, whether you're breathing through the stre- hip flex stretch, breathing through the mobility, or just doing a uh, 90-90 split, like feet on the wall breathing patterns through like alligator breaths and three-dimensional breathing through diaphragm because that will uh, allow the central nervous system to release. It'll allow your hip to reset and it'll just give you in a better position. Um, and then the last thing I will say is you have to switch up the exercise you're doing. So People usually go two ways. Either one, they do mobility and think that that's going to cure them and they can just start lifting heavy again right away and then the issue never goes away. Or two, they just stop working out. Now, the best thing to do is to switch up what you're doing. When I hurt my back, I knew that I couldn't do back squats. I couldn't do deadlifts. So I had to figure out something to do instead. I was either doing like front racked kettlebell or zercher squats or I was doing – because when you're loaded in the front, it pulls the rib cage down more. It keeps you tight and then you don't have to worry about compromising your, your the integrity of your core. And then uh, split stat like s- split squats, lunges, and then uh, staggered RDLs. So you can still hit the muscle group, but take the load off the spine. And I think that's a big issue that people, because everybody wants to go heavy and just deadlift and squat. Like split the uh, weight, distribute onto one leg. You still get the muscular benefit, but you're taking half the load off the spine. It's huge. And I would definitely say that those have helped me since we've been doing those for a little while now too. Right, and it allows you to train hard without damaging yourself more yeah yeah definitely so, all right perfect. well the next one comes from Jana, and her question is what do you do with people who have a big difference in between their left and right side i've had two a days for almost 10 years and had really bad back problems where i could barely walk sometimes for years first it was an si joint problem after years i'm pretty sure it's my left hip i'm also significantly weaker on that side so how would you recommend i train Hmm. Um, I, you know, because she, she referenced like this, I can't like give exact recommendations. One thing I would do is listen to the last question we just did. Cause the SI problem is going to be a low back issue and you can do everything we just talked about to help with that. Um, if you have, uh, an issue of like just asymmetry as far as one side's stronger than the other, what I would literally do is just simplify the hell out of everything add one rep on your bad side to everything you do. So if your program says you're doing a reverse lunge and it's eight per side, do eight on your good side, nine on your bad side every single time because you don't want to necessarily go heavier on the good side and give that too much attention. If anything, you should focus on maintaining the good side and bringing up the lagging side. So, and I wouldn't do it with adding weight simply because that can cause more of an imbalance and, uh, it's easier to maintain through reps. So I would literally just focus on building muscle, building endurance on that good side. And then as you add weight, just drop a uh, rep on the bad side, add a rep on the good side. And it's as simple as that. Now you're really going to have to work on mobility. You're going to have to work on the breathing. You're going to have to work on all that stuff, but just taking it to a simple, simple aspect of that, um, would be the biggest key. And I would probably start doing way more unilateral work than I would bilateral. So instead of doing overhead press, you would do a single, arm press on each side. If it's a leg issue, instead of doing a RDL, you do a single leg RDL. So you can isolate that. Or you can even add a drop set onto things you do. So if you are still comfortable doing squats and deadlifts, maybe you do four sets of eight on RDLs. And then after your fourth set, you add one set of single leg RDLs, as many as you can on that good side. So you just get a little bit of extra volume on that, that, or sorry, the bad side. You get a little extra volume on that bad side. Um, 
And then she said, uh, also with squatting, if I do deep squats, I am overcompensating with my right side. So yeah, like if you're overcompensating to one side, you have to go, you have to go back to basics and start doing the movement stuff. Like, like, especially with the rolling, like you were talking about, so you can bridge the gap between side to side, do the crawling, like I was talking about. So the neurological side comes in and then just focus on doing mobility and not skipping it. I think that's the biggest issue with people is it's boring. It's not as fun unless you're Theo apparently, and he likes (laughs) doing that shit. But, um, if you don't do that, you're going to just keep having that imbalance. You're going to keep overcompensating on one side. Cause I know for me, like I did that for years, like because I had the knee surgery on my left side, I would naturally shift to my right because my mind's just trying to protect it. But I didn't even realize. So I just kept squatting heavier and heavier and heavier because it didn't bug me. It didn't hurt. But I didn't know that I was doing more range of motion on the right side until Theo was uh, actually filming me do a PR on a back squat. I'll never forget this. And we were at the old gym. It was way back. And I was doing a back squat. And uh, he filmed me. And we were watching the video afterwards. And I was just – my ass was sitting to the right side so much. And that's when I was like, holy shit, I got to start like thinking about this. So then I had to start purposely pushing into my left side so I can create range of motion. And then I – so like – with that, you notice a big difference because I went lighter, and but because I was getting more range of motion on the left side that I wasn't used to, I was tremendously sore and fatigued on the left side like I haven't felt. Yeah. So then it was kind of like a wake-up call, like, oh, shit, I really got to start working on this. Um, so that would be my biggest recommendation, a lot of unilateral work, um, and just, just go back to basics. All right. So James has a question about hypothyroidism. He says, for someone with hypothyroidism, what's a, that's a tough word to say, by the way. For someone with hypothyroidism, <laughs> what's a good macros percentage of fats, carbs, and protein? So the reason I, I, I wanted to do, I want to do a couple things with this one. First, I want to say like what I'm about to say goes for anybody with thyroid issues. So you can have hyperthyroidism or you can have hypothyroidism. So we just, just essentially means too fast, too slow. So your thyroid is not balanced and it's working in the too fast or the too slow range. It doesn't, but either way, you kind of take the same approach. You just adjust calories according to which you fall into. Cause obviously if it's work too fast, working too slow, you're going to need more or less calories. Um, because you need to figure that out. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a balance because if your thyroid is being affected negatively, you have to essentially stop focusing on fat loss and you have to attack that problem. Cause I've seen, I've actually, this is a really common uh, thing with women. It happens quite often. I think it's a I think It's a lifestyle factor of just stress, um, hormonal tension, um, improper training, improper nutrition, lifestyle factors that everybody lives through with. I mean, we talked about this stuff with the, in the testosterone episode about circadian rhythm and all this stuff, all these things out of whack can have an effect on this. And I think the most important thing is to just balance your calories, balance your macronutrients and just focus on that. And once you focus on that and recovering stress, then your thyroid will improve and you will naturally start losing weight. So that being said, I can't give an exact macro percentage, but what I do see that works the best is first get your, about your body weight and protein because and even maybe a little bit more. So I would go anywhere between 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight, which can seem like a lot, but there's a couple things here. One, um, women are typically smaller than men, so they can actually benefit from having more protein than their body weight because it takes a certain amount of protein to spike 
protein synthesis no matter how big you are. So you can be a 300 pound man or you can be a 150 pound woman and you need 25 to 40 grams to stimulate it optimally per meal. But if you are 100 pounds and you only eat 100 pounds of protein, it's really hard to get enough stimulus of muscle protein synthesis, right? So you might need to eat more than your body weight. But that being said, I would recommend that much protein. That also will allow you to bump your calories up without having added body fat because it's very, very hard for your body to store protein as fat. Um, and if I start going on a rant and this gets like confusing, <laughs> dude, stop me and make sure you <laughs> let me simplify it. But essentially, if you can bring your protein up, you can bring your calories up. And one thing about um, hormonal issues in general, like a lot of people, like he said, what's a good macro ratio? A lot of people are like, will re recommend you need more carbs or you need more fat or you need more of this one thing in order to help your hormonal, uh, whether it's um, thyroidism, cortisol issues, stress issues, adrenal issues, testosterone issues. But what they're actually linking it to is these people increase one of these macronutrients and they get a benefit, but it's not because of the macro, it's because of the calorie. So if you're in a super big calorie deficit, whatever your thyroid issue is, is not going to be benefited or it's not going to improve. So what you need to do is just get your calories up. So what I told him is I would do the one to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight of protein just to get your calories up. And that's going to probably be around 40% of your calories. And then I told him start with 30, 30. So if you get your calorie set, you get your protein set and you just make carbs 30% of that diet and fats 30% of that diet, they'll be healthy, they'll be balanced and they'll have their calories. And that's the most important thing. Now you're going to notice that somebody's going to lean towards more fat and or more towards carbs. And what you do at that point is decide, okay, maybe I want to push the carbs up to 35% and the fats down to 25% or vice versa because anything works. Now, there's another part of it. <laughs> okay. So the thing with fats is there's – fats are more peculiar because like, like I've said on the podcast before and we talked about in the What the Health episode, um, fats and protein are essential nutrients, meaning – you literally can't survive without them. Your body will break down tissues, it won't function, your hormones won't function, nothing works if you don't have those two nutrients. Carbs are a non-essential nutrient. And somebody like, did you see the guy that jumped on us on the Instagram that got kind of pissed about that? About carbs and? Yeah, and the, he's like, carbs are optimal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's the thing, is I agree with him, and I and I, I, I think I answered that respectfully, I think but so. I, I agreed with him that carbs are, optimal like if we want to optimize our body we want to optimize our performance we want to optimize our mind and how we think and how we live we should have carbs because carbs are going to help us perform in every aspect of life but they're not essential nutrient meaning we can cut them out completely and we can survive by having pro because one protein can get converted into gl uh, glucose which is carbs so our body will transform protein molecule into a carbohydrate molecule which is glucose or glycogen because there is an absence of carbs meaning we don't really need carbs on top of that we can convert fats into ketones which can be substituted and used as energies as we now know because the ketogenic diet which makes sense if you think about it like now that i'm saying this i'm processing it right if we look at like ancestral like caveman shit yeah it makes sense because it was probably a lot harder for them to get carbohydrates whether it was rotten fruit or if they could even find good fruit or it was potatoes or it was grains which couldn't be even created back then, whatever it is, right. carbs are probably harder to get, right? And some vegetables, even the starchy ones like squash and carrots and stuff that grew naturally more easily aren't that dense as far as how many carbohydrates are within them. So it makes a lot of sense of why we can survive with only protein and carb or protein and fat and we don't need carbs. Now, right. going off of that, um, I was going on a little rant. Um, with the thyroid thing, 
certain fats stimulate hormones uh, better. So it is important to have fats in your diet. So I don't recommend a low fat diet for anybody having a thyroidism. It's either going to be a higher fat or it's going to be a balanced fat because you need to make sure that you get an a wide variety of different fats from omega-3s to omega-6s to unsaturated or saturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated and have like a good one, three to one ratio or one 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 ratio as far as everything being equal if you can. Um, and just getting a wide variety of really clean, healthy sources of fats because that will help. Now, if you're getting all your fats from only nuts, it's not going to help you. But if you get them from eggs and avocados and nuts and fatty fish and all these different sources, olive oil, then you're going to be healthier. So that was a long-winded answer, but to wrap it up, like the smartest thing for somebody who has hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, balance your calories, balance your macros, see which one you lean more towards and just stay with that so you can adhere to a balanced diet for a longer period of time because that's more important. And then stress and sleep is going to be huge because that's going to throw off your hormones completely, um, especially with women because the thyroid is like the control center of their hormones. Um, and if cortisol goes out of whack, your adrenal glands are out of whack, then your thyroid's going to go out of whack as well. Um, so, and then the one last thing is you should be training because obviously exercise is going to benefit your thyroid tremendously. If you do it properly, that means you can't overtrain, but you have to train. Right. Did that make sense? Do you think anybody listening can grasp that or is that too much? If I think if they took some notes, I think it, it all makes sense. Okay. Okay. Well, if you have questions on that, you can hit me up. <laughs> Thanks. And expect a, a response just like that of uh, well, well detailed. All right. Well, and you know what? Like, and the thing is too is I've worked with, and it's crazy that when he asked that, I realized how many people, how many women I've worked with over the course of the last five or six years that have had a thyroid issue. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable, and it's a genetic thing as well. So some women will have it just because they're predisposed to have it because their mom had it, or like I have a couple clients that have had mom grandma everything shannon same thing mom grandma like so yeah. it's it's common right so you really got it and it's easier it's simple but it's it's not easy because it is a difficult thing to get through for sure all right final one from ian how much do you think epigenetics should be factored into a person's diet i have a friend who felt like ass and could never get full from carbs yet i can't get full without carbs particularly pasta you must be Italian or something. <laughs> I don't know why you're doing the pasta at the end. Um, have you have you looked into epigenetics at all? No, but I've looked into pasta and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was expecting you to actually say yeah, just because like a Crohn's and everything. Because yeah, no. um, so so like epigenetics is there's a couple of things I would say about this. Um, like a lot of people ask questions, and Ian is Ian's really into the science of stuff. He's he's in the group, obviously, and he asks pretty science-based questions. And sure. he was actually in a personal training uh, c- uh, class or course at a technical college when I used to teach there. Oh, cool. So that's how I know him. So he's, yeah. he's into this stuff. So um, when I say like this is kind of splitting hairs – I don't mean it like a shot at him because I understand that like I ask fucking the most detailed questions to people all the time because I want to learn this stuff, right? And it's my career, it's my passion just like it is his. Um, for most people, you're splitting hairs. I don't want people to look into epigenetics and find out the nuances of DNA and cell research and all these things because it can get really confusing and you're just going to create more stress. But at the end of the day, like epigenetics is a, a really vast and wide topic because it in, – it, talks about like genetically what we're predisposed to and how we can change that 
through environment, lifestyle, everything. So cool. the crazy thing is that they're finding is that like obviously we all have like wh- why do I have dirty blonde hair? Why did I have blonde hair as a kid? Why do I grow a beard faster than some people grow a beard? Why do I have – why am I short? Why is he tall? Like these are all genetic things, right? Yeah. Um, the thyroid thing, that can be a genetic thing. But then there's epigenetics, that, uh, influential factors that cause epigenetics to happen as well. So think about maybe – Susie has thyroid issues, but she didn't have um, related to the thyroid because it's easy. She, her family didn't have thyroid issues, but her lifestyle factors caused her to create this genetic component that she is stuck with. Right. So, and this is how I understand epigenetics. So it's it's a really it it really is a lot of different things that get influenced and can change your DNA, can change your cells, can change your genes uh, and your uh, genome and everything like that. So it gets pretty deep and it gets pretty confusing. So what I would say is um, epigenetics – I'm just going to say genetics in general and environmental factors because I think epigenetics just makes things confusing. So genetics can factor um, a person's diet from a couple of reasons. One, they're actually doing a lot of studies on this. And this this shit – like I saved this for last because this is going to be a rant and this is going <laughs> to – this shit interests me a lot lately. So I've been looking into a lot of like ancestral stuff and uh, genetical stuff and, and – uh, Genetical. Genetical. I don't know. I don't know. I, was gonna say, I don't know if that's what, uh, that sounds weird. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, like, I don't know what it would be called. I guess ancestral again. But where, where from the globe your family is at, located, right? So they're they're finding depending on, and this kind of relates to the circadian rhythm again. Depending on where you're at, according to the uh, equator, and where your family history is from, according to the equator, equator can actually influence how you uh process carbohydrates and how you what kind of diet you should follow that that's why like the mediterranean diet worked really well with a lot of people and it's a very balanced diet balanced protein balanced carbs balanced fat it's pretty much straight across the board they found that what was grown there as far as produce and all these different foods and in what animals live there and everything in that mediterranean area that's just what they grew up over time consuming and got equated to and, and that's what they can absorb and, and tolerate better right so if you live in like ireland scotland norway like that area you're actually more um you might do better with a high protein high fat diet and a moderate low carb right and then there's certain countries that do really well with a really really high carb diet and those are the like countries that are in like i think i want to say in like the africa and stuff where there is a lot of fruit and access to these things where they would snack on them daily so they're finding out all this stuff so that's one way genetics can uh, factor into one person's diet. I don't typically look into that, but what I would say is I've noticed that if you let people, if you set protein and calories for somebody and you kind of let them flux carbs and fats, they'll probably lean to what they naturally can tolerate best. Because if you teach them about body awareness, they'll, they'll eat what they feel better eating. They'll likely eat what they process better. And when those two things are in sync, then you're probably going to have better results. So it can kind of go into that route. Um, another thing would be lifestyle factors. So sleep, stress, um, what kind of training you do, what kind of cardio you do, um, all that stuff. Even like uh, internal factors as far as microbiome, uh, your gut health, all these things can take have a big play in what you tolerate, what you feel full off of, what your body absorbs because everything we put in our body gets absorbed and used or stored. 
So what's going to be used better is going to allow us to feel better, allow us to get satiated better. It's going to give us better energy. So we have to look at all those factors as well. That's why I think like body awareness is so key. Um, and I love like elimination diets and things like that to, to build body awareness so you can understand what actually works best for you. Um, so all these things play a big role. And I think that like if you can manage all of these things a little bit better, you're going to be better off because you're you're essentially your microbiome and your gut health is going to be in better check and it's going to allow these things to your genetics, your epigenetics to all these things to happen easier. And I think that's why I'm really interested in the ancestral stuff and the circadian rhythm because it essentially optimizes your gut health. And if you can optimize your gut health, you will learn to be more aware of your body. You'll process things better. You'll feel better. And and all these things kind of just fall into place. So, um, I think, if I had to give them an answer, how much do epigenetics factor in? I would say a lot because I think I think truthfully, epigenetics is such a wide variety of things that all these things play such a big role on how we absorb and intake and utilize nutrients and calories and food that it would be it would be stupid to say that it doesn't affect us tremendously. Yeah, and I you said the right word ancestral uh, instead of genetical, but um... yeah. But I would agree I like with that. Man. You know, everybody knows I make I make up words a lot, but I had to stop and I was like, I don't know if that's a that's a codyism. <laughs> a codyism, that's what yep. we should call them. Um <laughs> I will say though that I completely see how that works, and I forgot to mention this in the What the Health episode, but my great grandpa lived to be one hundred and one and he all he was from Greece, like always ate that strict Mediterranean diet. Um, but they always farmed and ate their own foods and I could see how that was way healthier in the long run versus all these other processed type foods I mean up until his 101st birthday he was eating like feta cheese and salami every single day that was his favorite thing with with crackers so and he never had any health issues nothing major right and I think a couple things right there, right? Like one he's eating natural foods staying away from processed stuff but then two he's eating according to what ancestral like genes tell him to eat and he just did it naturally because that's how he was raised but i think it's smart and i think a lot of people that are in the westernized diet fall from that because everything around us is opposite of what we were raised on or opposite of what our ancestors were raised on because gmos and processed foods and and convenience and all these things have changed and it just so the more you can eat more natural foods and here's the thing is everybody's going to eat some processed shit here and there i do it all the time once a week I, i yeah, it is. And and that's okay, but if 90% of your diet can be real food, you're going to be much better off. And I think like I was having a conversation with uh our intern the other day cuz he was asking about um what the health um after he learned our episode and he was we were kind of going back and forth and he was like, "So what's what is like I understand that uh the whole processed meat versus real meat thing, like what's the issue with artificial sweeteners and in processed food and all these things?" And I think at the end of the day, like we don't know. And even the smartest scientists who aren't biased, and that's the biggest thing, who aren't in a camp, right? will say the exact same thing. And, and actually, I read a, or I listened to a talk by Rob Wolf, who we were talking about on that episode, and he brought up processed sugars and sweeteners and all these things. And the biggest thing there is we do not know yet. And it's safer to say that you should probably have them minimally in your diet because we don't know. Right. And the reason being is, we can do an eight week study on rats and we can over consume them. So it's equivalent of drinking eight two liter Cokes a day, but 
or Diet Coke today, but let's be realistic, that's not a realistic factor. So if they were to try to notice something with just a couple cans of pop a day, nothing happens over an eight-week period. But they can't keep a rat, let alone a human being, for 10 years to do that study. So we have to look at like, okay, if these – these things lead up to a like a very, very, very minimal effect. How will they lead up to an effect in 50 years? So I think that's the best thing to look at is like, one, they're not natural. So our body probably wasn't meant to process them. If we can process them right and our body's strong enough, it probably will do better with a smaller amount. And we really don't know enough to say that they're safe or unsafe. So it's best to keep them at a minimal amount. Um, and people like your grandfather who lived to 101 – Probably didn't really consume any processed stuff until – and if they did, it probably wasn't until his very later ages because it wasn't available till then, right? right? So it's a small fraction of his life. Right. And he so didn't like that. And thing. it was interesting because he didn't like that stuff because that was, to him wasn't food. So. Yeah. When it's just like when people go to like Italy or something and they have the the produce there compared to the produce here. Right. And it's so different, right? Or like, like I was talking to Shannon about this the other day. Like – um, I went and bought a sweet potato um, and then we, I think we got some apples too, but like I'm just looking at them and I'm like, and I actually, you know, it's funny. I bought Theo a sweet potato at this one market because it was so <laughs> absurd, but dude, it was like bigger than my head. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, is that real? Is that, or is that like because of all these things? Now I know sweet potatoes can get pretty big, but then if you look at apples and bananas and stuff, if you, if you I want everybody listening to this to Google what a, uh, a banana looks like hundreds and thousands of years ago completely different it probably tasted like shit too because it's it's literally like because of uh, like all these different ways we can process and and put things into the ground and put things into the plants to make them grow bigger and and i don't even know what the right word is for it but it's not it's obviously not a steroid but plants that we can get them to grow bigger and sweeter and like an apple probably didn't taste that sweet back in the day now you bite into a huge apple uh honey crisp apple right it it tastes like candy yeah but there's no way it did that naturally back in the day so it's it's funny to think about the and and i'm guilty for eating those those are the only apples i buy but (laughs) it's you gotta like you gotta wonder like how much of that is real and how much of that our body can tolerate so if that's in there like imagine what's in some fucking sour patch kids yeah or airheads i cut out the airheads man i haven't been eating those i know it's been a long time yeah, I actually had a couple in my bag I pulled out. So I had a diabetic client who um, wasn't doing so good the other day. And uh, we like last minute after we pulled out the cookies, everything, I found some airheads. And I was like, fuck, we could have used these 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Because that'll spike his blood sugar up real quick. But uh, yeah, man, I've been trying to cut all that stuff out. I feel a lot better, actually. So It's hard at first, but I think once you can do it for a while, it becomes way easier. With I think that's yeah. obviously how a lot of things are, but... Yep, yep. All right. Well, is that the last question? That was the final one. I think that wraps it up for the today. Um, guys, once again, you have a small window to jump into the team page. All these questions were answered directly to the person asking the question. Um, and soon we're just going to keep them in the team page and not even on the podcast because it, it's going to be its own separate entity where we can have conversations. So not only did I answer these on the podcast – but I answer them directly to the person and then they can give me feedback and I can give them more feedback so we can have a conversation to troubleshoot their question and their issue. So if we're talking about individualized nutrition, training, stress, all these things that factor into our lifestyle, this is the best place to go. You can click the link in the show notes. It's free for a very limited time and we are going to start charging for it soon. So I suggest everybody jump on that right away. And with that being said, 
Deuces. Boom. If you love the Mind vs. Muscle podcast, want more free content, and you want to support the movement, share this podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review. To get your questions answered on the next episode, see the show notes for our social media handles and hashtag Mind vs. Muscle.